sex, forest bathing, and other fun stuff. Aside from attending to your own body's basic functions, there are so many ways that we can enjoy this body we're in as well as take care of it. Let's consider some of these. Get it on. Human beings are social creatures and we need interaction with people our own age, not just with the 130 high school sophomores with whom we spend our days. But sometimes we forget this, don't we? So let's remind you, you need friends, confidants, relatives, and lovers. You need emotional and physical intimacy. I've worked with many brilliant educators who put cultivating relationships low on their list of things for which to carve out time. Would a smatter, smattering of science convince you to tumble in the hay? Entertain your intellect with a few facts about the psychological benefits of a healthy sex life. Sex can lower your blood pressure, help balance your estrogen and testosterone levels, which can help prevent osteoporosis and heart disease boost your immune system, induce relaxation and improve sleep, increase your heart rate, engage muscles that you don't use in the classroom, and burn more calories than watching TV. Stimulate bonding between people. That's enough science. Just know that sex is good for you, with or without a partner. And by the way, you have permission to enjoy your body. You have a right to pleasure. You deserve it. One last thing, although sex has unique physical and emotional healthy benefits, hugs and touch can also be therapeutic and healing. In The How of Happiness, Professor Sonia cites a study in which people assigned to give or receive hugs five times a day ended up much happier than their non-hugging counterparts in the study. But you know that is true, right? I doubt you need studies about which neurotransmitter does what when someone you care about grabs you in a bear hug or even just holds your hand. So do it. Let's consider some additional fun and easy ways to take care of your body that also have physiological benefits. Spend time in the trees. In Japan, there is a practice called Shinrin-yuku, which translates as forest bathing and is considered a form of preventative health care and healing. We all most likely know and agree that being in nature makes us feel good, and Japanese researchers have produced a robust body of literature on the physical and mental benefits of soaking up the sights, smells, and sounds of the natural world. In Japan, forest bathing is considered a medical practice and is even covered by insurance. Here's what scientific studies have found about the benefits of the forest bathing. Many trees give off organic compounds and support natural killer cells that boost our immune system and help fight cancer. Many plants also give off substances called fonticides, which are antimicrobial organic compounds. Breathing these substances promotes relaxation. Being in the forest lowers blood pressure and stress hormone cortisol, and forest bathing improves mood, energy, sleep and the ability to focus. Forest bathing differs from hiking because it centers on therapeutic aspects of being in nature. The goal is not exercise or reaching a destination. The goal is to go to the forest, walk slowly, breathe, open all of your senses. That's it. Sitting near water, sit by a stream, splash in the lake, gaze at the ocean, or dive into an underground spring. Their science behind the therapeutic beliefs or benefits of being in and near water. An entertaining read on this subject is Blue Mind, the surprising science that shows how being near 
in, on, or underwater can make you happier, healthier, more connected, and better at what you do. According to the biologist Nichols, water gives the brain a rest from overstimulation, induces a meditative state, evokes feelings of connection to something beyond ourselves, and spurs creativity. Just think about how many great ideas you've had in the shower. The ocean and waterfalls and thunderstorms also emit high levels of negative ions, and we need these. The atmosphere we breathe is full of positive and negative ions, but most of us spend our time indoors. Air conditioning and poor ventilation remove negative ions, which can make us feel low energy, sleepy, and even depressed. You feel more energized at the beach because of the negative ions. You can't be near naturally running water. Just open the windows, go outside whenever you can, and even consider an air purifier. Immerse yourself in a flotation tank. For a unique mind and body therapeutic experience, float in a sensory deprivation tank. By diminishing nearly all sights, sounds, smells, and touch, your mind can settle, sparking creativity, relaxation, and even emotional breakthroughs. Floaters not only claim relief from insomnia, pain, and anxiety, but also use this therapy as a way to hone their mental concentration. Golden State Warrior MVP Steph Curry is an avid floater and credits it with his ability to be calm and focused on the court. If you're really curious, there's even scientific research on therapeutic impact. Just Google it. Obviously, floating is not for the claustrophobic, but don't let the weirdness of it deter you from trying it. It is surprisingly fun. Get your 15 minutes of sun. Our bodies need direct sunlight several times a week in order to get vitamin D, and many of us are vitamin D deficient. Numerous studies have shown that optimizing your vitamin D level may help prevent different types of cancer. The best way to get more vitamin D is through sunscreen-free exposure to the sun. Aim for 15 to 30 minutes a few times a week and try to get that midday sun. In the winter, it's even more important to get sunlight. Our bodies are governed by carotidian rhythms, our body's natural clock that regulates important functions, sleeping, including sleep, wake cycles, and mood. Shorter days and less sunshine affects these rhythms. An estimated 20% of Americans experience seasonal affective disorder, even each winter, seasonal defective disorder each winter. When you're in the sun, your body releases serotonin, which helps elevate your mood and energy. Knowing this information about sunlight might help alleviate the annoyance of doing yard duty. Perhaps you could eat lunch outside once or twice a week, take a walk before school, or greet kids as they arrive at the school in the morning. Put your feet on the earth. Have you noticed you feel better when you're walking barefoot on the earth? Recent research explains that our immune system functions optimally when our body has an adequate supply of electrons, which get through barefoot contact with the earth. You can reap these same benefits from other forms of direct contact with the ground, walking on the beach, sitting in a park, or laying in the grass as long as there isn't anything between your body and the earth. There's growing evidence that this kind of connective contact is beneficial for our health and in any case, it's a nice way to just be outside. You meet your sunlight requirements, and if you do, and if you do it surrounded by trees, you can soak up its goodness too. So give it a try. Spend 10 minutes a few times a week sitting on the earth. Tell yourself 
this is a boost to my physical and mental well-being and see if you don't feel better. Learn to say no. Saying no is liberating. No, I can't attend so the social hour. No, I can't join the committee. No, I can't take the kids to the park tomorrow. What would you like to say no to right now? Saying no means saying yes to something else. If you say no, no, I can't join that committee. You might be able to say yes to an hour of walking in the sun twice a month during the time when the committee meets. What do you wish you could say yes to right now? If you have a hard time saying no to people, you most likely have a problem with overcommitting. And then what happens? As the event of obligation approaches, you berate yourself for having made the commitment. You fantasize about ways to back out of it or make up excuses or cancel or you show up with an aura of resentment and unhappiness about you, or force a smile and push yourself through it, all the while feeling tired and aware that you're denying yourself whatever it is you really want to be doing. You tell yourself, I never should have said yes to this. I know I would be too tired, or I knew I didn't really want to do it. So why did you say yes? Why do you overcommit? The answers to these questions most likely lie in your sense of self-worth. You say yes because you want people to like you. You say yes because you want people to think you are good or smart, skilled, or capable. You say yes because you want to be wanted. You say yes because you're afraid that if you say no, they won't ask again. They won't be your friend. They won't want you in their school. They won't love you. You say yes because you're afraid. But here's what you may or may not know. First, when you say yes to something you don't really want to do, and then you show up, other people sense that cautiousness or unconscious, that consciously or unconsciously, that they can know that you don't want to be there. That's not really fair to them either. Do things Give your time and energy because you want to and because you can, not because you feel obligated. When you say yes to something because you're afraid, the fear won't go away. It'll bubble nauseously under the surface and you'll still be obligated to fulfill your commitment because it's really not fair to agree to something and then back out. Take responsibility for the choices you've made, learn from them, and make different choices in the future. When you say no, you're likely to let someone down. You may disappoint them. Learn how to say no kindly and thoughtfully. Maybe they'll say, I'm hurt that you won't be there. And you can hear that, acknowledge it, and live with it. You may feel sad, but you can also recognize that you need to take care of yourself. And in that moment, that's the cost of doing so. Let others deal with their own emotional response. When you say no, some people might get angry. Don't freak out by anger and don't be the recipient of people's aggression. Get away from them if they get angry. There's a difference between disappointment and hurt and anger. You don't deserve it. When you start saying no, when you start drawing boundaries around what you will give and do for others, you're likely to gain insight into whom you would have in your life. Toxic relationships will come into focus. 
You'll gain clarity on whom you need to be compassionately removed from your life so that you so that you'll have more space for yourself, for your well-being, and for your happiness. Your resilience will always be undermined if you have energy vampires clinging to your neck. You are not a victim in this scenario. You can detach those vampires and set them free by saying no. As you clear away people who want things from you, but may not truly care for you, you'll find that you'll have more space in your life for people who can appreciate you for who you are, who accept you as you are, and who will say no to you when you need to, and who will take care of themselves. It is root your struggle to say, no has to do with your sense of self-worth. The resilient have a heroine sense of self-worth, self-esteem, and self-regard. There's no getting around this on the path to becoming resilient, which is why there are so many points in this book where I suggest you work with a therapist. The origins, our lack of resilience, are often deep in our childhood. Reading this book, engaging in the workbook exercises, Talking about this with colleagues and working with a coach are all significant steps towards well-being, but they may not be enough to live the kind of life that deep down you want to live. Here's the most powerful way to figure out how to respond to a request. Ask yourself, what do I want to do? Keep asking yourself this question over and over as you contemplate the rest of the mental chatter that rattles through your mind. Sort through feelings of obligations, fears of not being wanted, fears of disappointing others, fear of someone else's anger, and keep asking yourself, what do I want to do? It may take time, and at first your response might be barely an audible whisper, but keep asking the question and listen carefully. Then act on what you hear. A dive into perfectionism. At the heart of perfectionism is the belief that in order to be loved and accepted, we must strive to act and be the best all the time. Our very worth as human beings is tied into our perfection. The pursuit of perfection consumes a great deal of time and energy because every time we feel shame, blame, or criticism, our response is, I wasn't perfect enough. So let me be more perfect next time. And this goal, remember, is not possible. Perfectionists get upset when someone else or life in general doesn't measure up to how they think things should be. Have uncompromising rules about how things should or must be. Blame themselves and others for things that aren't under their control or the control of others. They think in black and white terms. They quickly discount positives. They are relentlessly hard on themselves and others and hold rigidly high and unre unrealistic standards. They use the word should a lot. They claim they're not a perfectionist. They just have high standards. Perfectionism may not actually be an emotion, but rather a dysfunction of emotional tendency. It is one of the most challenging emotional tendencies to confront, but left unchecked, it can be coercive. If you are a new teacher and you know you're a perfectionist or you sense the potential to become one, it's worth it to dig out those emotional roots of this trait rather than live under its rule for years. 
Perfectionism has been associated with increased stress, physical health problems, mental health, health problems, and a high risk of burnout. It will eat through your resilience the way a colony of termites can churn through wood. Here is why perfectionism is so dangerous. There is, so, there is no such thing as a perfect, sorry guys, there is no such thing as perfect, at least among humans. It is inherent to our condition that we make mistakes, and without mistakes, we would have little chance to learn or grow or adapt to a new situation. Perfection would obstruct evolution. So perfectionists are always striving for the impossible, and they inevitably fail. They experience a surge of difficult emotions, shame, inadequacy, fear, and anger. These hurt the perfectionist as well as those around him. Perfectionism shouldn't be confused with a commitment to excellence and a strong work ethic. You can have tremendous energy and persistence and not be a perfectionist. Perfectionism is about seeking external validation, whereas healthy striving is all about internal drive. A healthy striver has high expectations and commits to a task while also making mistakes and knowing that those mistakes don't indicate a personal flaw. A perfectionism sense of self-worth is overly tied to external praise and accomplishments. Brene Brown is one of the world's experts on perfectionism. She says shame gives birth to perfectionism. Perfectionism isn't healthy striving, says Brown. It's not, let me be my best self. It is a thought process that says, if I look perfect, live perfectly, work perfectly, and do it all perfectly, I can avoid or minimize shame, blame, judgment, and criticism. Perfectionism is not a protective shield. Rather, it stops someone from being seen. Brown's TED Talks, books, speeches are powerful resources if you want to better understand this characteristic in your own self and others. The core of authenticity is the courage to be imperfect, vulnerable, and to set boundaries. Brene Brown. What can I do if I suspect I am a perfectionist? First, get real with yourself. Write a list of problems that perfectionism causes in your life. How does it consume your time and energy? How does it get in the way of forming healthy relationships? What's the impact on your physical health and well-being? How does it hold you back from doing the things you want to do? Find someone you trust. Ask, do you think I'm a perfectionist? How do you think this has affected me? Then make a list of what might be possible if you curtailed your perfectionist tendencies. What could you do in your life? How might you feel? What would your job be like if you cast out these termites? Commit to exploring, uprooting the origins of your perfectionism. Otherwise, like unwanted seeds, they will grow. Depending on how persuasive your perfectionism is and how deep the roots grow, you may need to get help from a mental health professional. Perfectionism is about self-worth, and many perfectionists had childhood experiences that led them to doubt their self-worth. While you're exploring your perfectionist roots, begin making behavioral changes. Set limits for yourself for tasks like writing emails or grading papers, and when the timer goes off, 
obey it. Set a time to leave school and don't deviate. Notice your self-talk and substitute unhelpful self-talk with new language. Say to yourself, this is good enough and good enough is great. I am enough. I do enough. And finally, if you think you might be a perfectionist or you want to rid yourself of any perfectionist tendencies, just do everything I'm telling you to do in this book. Get to know yourself, understand your emotions, tell empowering stories, build community, practice mindfulness, sleep and walk, cultivate compassion, and so on. Disposition, positive self-perception. If you want to bounce back quickly after setbacks, if you want to be resilient, you must place high value on the bouncy objective, yourself. When you value your mind, heart, body, and spirit, you'll make choices that foster your resilience. You'll do whatever it takes to bounce back. The self-care habits in this chapter can help you cultivate healthy self-esteem, which starts at the most fundamental level of your physical existence. You must value your body to value your emotional self and your mind. This, says the researchers, is the key trait of resilience. We value our self. We want this self to rebound quickly after adversity. Resilient people aren't overly critical of themselves. Don't strive for perfection and set boundaries. This is what it means to have a high self-esteem. Self-acceptance and self-love must be aspirations if you want strong, resilient muscles. With positive self-perception, we take responsibility for choices, actions, and mistakes. We accept ourselves as we are and forgive ourselves for mistakes. Positive self-perception is a tricky one because the foundation of self-esteem is laid down in our earliest years of life. If the first people responsible for caring for you did not love you exactly as you were, if they did not think that you were the most perfect, precious creature on the planet, if they wanted you to be anything other than the person you showed up as, then this disposition is more challenging to cultivate. If that is the case, I encourage you to work with a therapist and tackle this beast at its own place of origin. If you don't, those old feelings of inadequacy will unexpectedly pop up and deviously, ferociously, and cruelty when you least expect them. Although I hope you might explore the roots of your fragile self-esteem, doing so can take time. It is the route toward transformation and true resilience but there's another path you can explore simultaneously. Fake it until you make it. This approach is underused and there's a growing neuroscience research explaining that our mind will challenge in response to our behaviors. Take care of yourself and fake the concern if you must until you believe that you're worthy of self care. See what happens to your emotional landscape if you just take care of your physical self. My bet is that you'll not only feel better, but also start valuing yourself more and your self-esteem will surge. Now, put on your walking shoes and get outside.
A strive for balance. Maybe this doesn't need to be said, but this chapter is not a free pass to call in sick day after day when you're not feeling like going to school or to leave school with the kids at three o'clock. I doubt that most educators read this chapter seeking such permission, but in case you did, you probably need to do some soul searching about what you're doing and where you really want to be. Everyone else, make balance a goal. It might be hard or unrealistic to do every day all the self-care things you know that are good for you. Time is truly limited and maybe you have a family to care for and a long commute and night classes. But ultimately the time you put into taking care of yourself will reward you with productivity, efficiency, and emotional well-being. Without attending to the underlying physical causes of stress, you find it harder to bounce back from rough moments. Prioritize self-care. You may need only one extra hour of sleep, exercise, preparing a healthy salad, and even some meditation. No need to completely eliminate sugar or alcohol or caffeine. Just reduce it. Reduce TV time and replace it with a walk. As reduce the things that deplete your energy and increase the self-care, pay close attention to how doing so impacts your emotions, your patience with kids, your tolerance for an annoying coworker, and your ability to plan lessons and assess papers. Manage your vices, find the middle way, and strive for balance. I believe I am alive to heal and repair the world. And I appreciate receiving permissions from others who have walked this path. 